Hello there. Welcome to a brand new episode of my podcast, Podcast Racing. Today, I'm going to be discussing a show that is surprisingly controversial. I'm going to be talking about the sequel spin-off series to Avatar The Last Airbender, which is one of my favorite shows of all time and my favorite animated show of all time, The Legend of Korra. Uh, a note, uh, Avatar is one of my favorite shows, not Korra. But, uh, just to clarify. So, but yeah, so I'm going to be discussing uh, The Legend of Korra with two uh, very awesome people who have been on my podcast before, William and Tabitha. How are you guys doing? Hi. Hey, doing great. Yeah. That's good. That's really good. So uh, usually when I'm talking about a certain movie, show, franchise, whatever, I let my guests go first to uh, share their opinions and all that jazz, but this was actually my first time seeing the show. I have purposely avoided watching it, actually, because I have heard a lot of people say that it's not good and that it ruins the original show, and I've actually been avoiding it, but then I finally decided to give it a chance once I heard that it was going to be on Netflix on August 14th, and a few of my friends, including you guys, uh, actually really enjoyed it and were recommending it to me. So I actually started, though, a day early on August 13th. I uh, was able to get a free one-month trial to CBS All Access, and I binged all of The Legend of Korra, all four seasons, within a week and a half. It, even though I was working some of those days, I was still able to binge the entire uh, series. And... There are a lot of people who love Korra. There are a lot of people who hate Korra. And I'm kind of in the middle, but more so in agreement with the people who hate Korra. I am personally not that big of a fan of The Legend of Korra. I am not surprised, but I am very interested to see why you say that. Yeah, same. And and I think that I'm also sort of in the middle somewhere, but I'm interested to hear what you have to say. Oh, yeah. I, I Well, I have a lot to say when it comes to uh, certain <laughs> elements of this show, including the actual elements themselves. So first, I fall, first I'm going to talk about just the overall seasons uh, one by one. So let's start off with uh, season one of The Legend of Korra. It's bad. It, it's 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 pretty bad. It's messy. It's incoherent, and none almost none of the characters are interesting. Uh, the the villain Amon was kind of boring, and uh, well, he got a little bit more interesting towards the end. Oh, and by the way, spoilers. Full spoilers for all of Legend of Korra. If you have not seen Legend of Korra yet, then please stop watching. Uh, watch the show if you want, and then come back. But anyway, yeah, I, I really did not like season one at all. In fact, I, even in, even in the fir very first episode, I, was, I started to get concerned because I just, I, I just was not connecting with the story, and it, it was a bit jarring, just certain things, and so I have a lot of complaints with season one specifically, 
And one of the main complaints that I have is that just that the overall story of season one specifically just felt very jarring. felt very jarring, and it felt it felt rushed. Well, okay, so there are some things that you need to to look at when examining season one because we know that they were really only approved for one season, and they had to say what they wanted to say in that first season. It's only because of the, the positive reviews and, and the ratings that they were able to get approved for another season. So they, they, they treated it a little bit self-contained within that season. And yeah, that re leads to a lot of kind of rushing and maybe some character development. Actually, definitely some character development could have been done better. But uh, what, do you, what do you think made it, the story not grip you? The main thing for me to get engaged in a uh, film or show is obviously, you know, you have to have a compelling story, but the main thing is you have to have a really interesting or compelling uh, characters, especially the main character. And Korra, I never once in, in all of the four seasons watching a show emotionally connected with Korra at all. Do you not like that she was like Aang's equal opposite? Or were you wishing that she was more like Aang, a little bit more reserved? When the show began, and she already knew the three of the four elements, all that she needed to learn was air. I, I was actually really intrigued. And also when, uh, when uh, in the first episode, we discover that her personality is a lot, and her as an avatar, she's a lot different than Aang. I was very intrigued. I was like, ooh, okay, they're going in a very different and creative decision here. They're basically having main character who's the avatar, but it very, but going to be a very different avatar than Aang. You know, Aang is very much a pacifist. In the beginning of Avatar, he only knew air and had to learn the other three elements but in this it's kind of reverse on that Korra is definitely not a pacifist and she already knew and was very skilled at earth water and fire and just needs to learn air and i was really intrigued by that but the problem is that Korra is too much of a, a rush into things without thinking kind of person and she's kind of rude She's uh, kind of sarcastic at times, and I just, I, I don't know, I just don't feel like the writers, which were the same people involved, you know, Brian Cutsett, whatever his name is, and Michael yeah. Dante DiMartino, they're the same people that worked on Avatar. They're the same people worked on Korra, and I just feel like they tried a little too hard to make things different where they ended up making uh, a character that was too angsty and unlikable, in my opinion. I think Korra is too angsty. I think Korra is too reckless. And I, I just, I don't know. I just really, I never truly liked her. Like, never truly emotionally connected with her throughout the entire series. She only got interesting to me at, at like, briefly in the last season. All right, well, I, I have a few things to say in response to this. My first thing is 
I agree with you. I think that she's really hard to like, especially in the beginning seasons. I hate um, with, it, like, four exclamation points, the love diamond that was going on um, in season one. I thought that that was some of the dumbest stuff ever. I just hate that kind of stupid crap. I feel like the love in Avatar The Last Airbender was definitely more better written. And secondly, I think it was more enjoyable because the, they were children in a lot of ways. And so, and even Sokka, who was older, it was like innocent, good love. There wasn't all this like cheating behind everybody's back, trying to force things to be interesting. So I hated the love diamond so, so much. <laughs> but something I will say about her brash personality, if you think about it, Aang ran from being the Avatar for so long and hate it like that was his, like his main conflict is that he was just like I really do not want to be the avatar <laughs> and Korra I mean from episode one she punches through a wall and she's like I'm the avatar deal with it pew, pew, pew. you know she's like all ready to be the avatar and she's so excited so I think that's one part of her brash personality but then the next thing is she was sheltered so much like all the other avatars got to enjoy their travels and like go all around the world but instead she was like hidden by the white lotus and all her teachers were tro chosen for her and she was sheltered away from from actually doing the things she knew were important so then when she saw her opportunities to do things she was passionate about she took those opportunities because she was a rebellious teenager rebelling against the stuffy white lotus and uh and a loving and caring but also stuffy tenzin so i think i can kind of understand her brashness and rushing into things because of how sheltered she was but i agree with you she's really hard to like especially in season one so before i continue so yeah i i, I get what you're saying uh, tabitha but before i continue i want to address the production uh, behind the scenes, production issues, and all that. I am really sorry that for uh, what Nicola uh, to Brian and Michael for what Nickelodeon did, you know, with interfering with the show's production, and basically it's kind of their fault that uh, elements of the show were rushed or messy. But I, I still have to, you know, address that as a. I still have to address that as a criticism against the show, you know, like that's not, that's like messy writing, and in my opinion, messy writing or rushed character development is not excusable just because the studio or production companies behind it interfered with it. Like, you know, like I, I think that y yes, you know, yes, studio interference hap happens and it can, it can really ruin something, but I think that the writers or director or whatever can really get around the studio interference and still do something that doesn't feel rushed or messy. And so I, 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 I do acknowledge and am sorry to Brian and Michael that Nickelodeon basically ruined that, like it unintentionally maybe ruined the show. I do think though that it was a really awful b move on their part to just force the show in the final season onto Nick on their website, Nick.com. Like what, what was that yeah. all about? Yeah. Yeah. But I just, I, I still have to address the rushed and messy 
elements of Korra as a criticism. I just, yeah, I, I, I can't excuse it just because of studio interference. Sure. I do think looking past that, though, there there is a lot of good in the first season. I actually disagree with you about the villain. I thought that he was interesting and that the things that happened in the first season are surprisingly relevant, especially when when it comes to, like, pr police brutality and, and things like that, which I, I just thought was really fascinating. Um, like, interesting time for a rewatch, I guess. And I think that he was a fascinating character. I think you're right. He gets way more interesting, like, as the season progresses because of things that were happening with his brother and, like, that whole, like, getting to figure out that he's, like, the mafia boss son and, like, that whole backstory. I think that's really interesting and kind of cool. I also think it's really interesting because there's this mystery around, like, how is he taking people's bending? Like, this is terrifying. <laughs> how is he doing it? And then we find out that he's just, like, one of the most powerful bloodbenders we've come across so far. Just, I, I thought that he was a pretty interesting villain. I don't like, something I don't like about this conflict is that they don't really resolve it. Like, they take care of the, the guy, but then what about the resistance? There are some real concerns that these people were bringing up. Like, yeah, the, the benders are being abusive to the non-benders. And we even see it in Avatar The Last Airbender how Sokka gets picked on all the time and feels way lesser than because he's not a bender. So how are they addressing those issues? I Yeah, no, I, I agree with that last thing that you said. And... Yeah, I mean, Amon did get, you know, once it was revealed who Amon was, he did get a little bit more interesting, and my favorite moment in season one is actually when Tarlok uh, is on the boat with Amon, and then he realizes, he's realized at that point just how how far uh, down and basically how, basically how much he and Amon have fallen, and he decides to get, grab one of those electric glove thingies that mm -hmm. uh, Mr. Saito invented and used it to uh, stop and kill both himself and Amon. That was basically, that was one yeah. of the few times in season one, specifically of Korra, where I actually, like, got truly invested in what was going on. But, I don't know, just overall, I found Amon to be, I, I feel like it was too late when I feel like they should have started revealing stuff about Amon earlier to get me more interested, but for, like, the first nine or ten seasons, Amon was just the bad guy, and I felt like they went on a little... It, it, it's funny, like, I... It's funny because I think that the show, the, 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 the season, first season is rushed, and yet at the same time they revealed the villain's motivations and backstory a little too late. Like, it's kind of it's kind of conflicting things, what I'm saying, I know, but they are issues that I have with... There are some of the many issues that I have with the first season. However, I feel like Ozai in the first series was, like, the most boring villain. He was just generic evil. He was, he was very like, one-dimensional. Yeah. And but as Ozai was one-dimensional, but Zhao in season one of Avatar was the most boring villain. I mean, I'm not arguing about who's boring. It's just how one-dimensional can you be? And we are never, it's not until the very end that we're treated to much of anything of, of the Fire Lords, like, 
greater motivations and and get to see things a little bit from his point of view. And I guess I guess the point to make here is uh, it was the themes that mattered more, I think, than it actually did whether or not we were invested in the villain. But I think that villains in Korra became a lot more of the focal points for the story than than the the the, the just the theme of the of or, or the quest toward the fire lord that that avatar was yeah but also i would say that to kind of confirm what you're saying uh colton the so in avatar the last airbender we see that the story is definitely way more episodic so every episode kind of has like a nice little bow on it there's like its own tension its own plot like and you can watch a standalone episode pretty much anywhere in the series and it's still a satisfying story without needing to lean on the main plot it's still like progressing the plot in most episodes but in Korra we see that it's very much a serial plot going from like the beginning of the season to the end of the season like that's your storyline we don't really get those little mini stories throughout like we we have some of like the fire ferrets um and like everything happening with them which i think is pretty cool um and, and we get some tiny little arcs within that but nothing like as clean and neat as avatar the last airbender so i think that because we're so much more reliant on the main villain for the storyline of the episodes, like individually, it I think it is more important to have an interesting villain. But I do think that he was an interesting villain. So, yeah. <laughs> I'll I'll be I'll be honest. Like, I I didn't. I'll be honest. Me personally, I didn't find any of the villains truly interesting, except for except Zahir. Zaheer was awesome. Yeah. Zaheer is actually a really cool uh, BA character. He's the only villain that in the entire show that I was genuinely intimidated by at times. I liked liked Zaheer and I liked Amon. I was not a fan of Unalak pretty much whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. Unalak was boring. And Kovira was... uh, I thought I thought her how interesting she was as a villain depreciated yes. over the season. I think so too because of the, oh we're not there yet. But at the beginning of the season, I didn't know whether to think she was a villain or whether she was a hero. Like it makes her interesting. It makes her so interesting. But then as she goes through, you know, the seasons, like oh she's clearly evil. You're kind of losing all your interest to me. And then it just yeah, it's not that great. <laughs> I completely agree uh, with what you're saying about Kavira. Yeah, I just, yeah, at first I thought that they were going to make her a sort of anti-hero type of character where, you know, oh yeah, she is doing all these bad things, but genuinely means well. And, but then she ends up yeah. just- They definitely had like a villain. Yeah. yeah, and I think that's actually one of the things that they were sh- striving for with all of their villains. Uh, you you kind of see it summed up by, by Toth in book four. You see how she said each of them had, like, good ideologies that were carried to extremism, 
And so you can kind of see how each of them was at least a little bit in their eyes trying to make the world a better place. Mm-hmm. At least probably at a point. Probably at a point before they came became jaded and disillusioned. Except uh, for what's-his-face, second season, what's-his-name again? Unalak? No. Unalak probably had a point in his life where he thought, if I just... Became Nick Avatar, I would, the world would be that better. That probably wasn't his original so. thought. Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm making yeah. things up now. Obviously, I don't know, uh, I don't know his backstory yeah. more than exactly. it gets in, Ex- but, that, Exactly. That's, but that's what makes Unalak, like, so boring, is that, like, we've only seen Unalak the evil, and we never saw like a flashback or anything of uh, the the writers uh didn't uh we, the writers didn't even like give us like one flashback or anything like that to show Unalak possibly having good intentions at first and then later on just deciding to be the dark avatar big giant glowing monster oh well so here's what i will say in defense of Unalak, which you won't hear me say very many things in defense of Unalak. <laughs> He was a bit more interesting when they were focused on the Civil War side of the season than he was when he, when it was focused on the spiritual side. Of the Although I was very interested in him at the beginning, like, whoa, he's so in, in tune with the spirits. And the spiritual side of Avatar has always been something that uh, very much interested me. And so when he had the energy bending and we're introduced to it and it's like, oh, this is weird, but hey, it's okay. I, I'm along for the ride. I thought he was he was fairly interesting then, but then when when he goes further and it starts being about spirit portals, yeah, he he starts to lose some interest. And I've I've heard a lot of people say of the second season that they were a fan, and this is very, definitely Tabitha. They were a fan of the Civil War side of the season, but then everything involving this path to the Dark Avatar was oh, and not interesting. Conclusion was diabolical. Like, who thought of that giant spirit people shooting lasers out of their chest? Like, this is not Dragon Ball Z. Let's just tone it down a little bit. (laughs) I thought that was so cheesy and really took me out of it. Yeah, you'll you'll hear me say the most negative things about, because I, I love Legend of Korra. You'll hear me say the most negative things about season two. And something that Tabitha and I were talking about prior to the podcast was, we actually a little bit feel like the order of seasons, if they had known that they were going to be able to have four seasons from the start, uh, the order of the seasons probably should have been a little different because a real hurdle that you have to overcome with the power creep that was the, the season two finale is, okay, you just saved the universe. Well, now, now where does that go? And even though season three, awesome season, I think it really struggled with, well, now, now that you've saved the universe, <laughs> where do we go from there, right? We can't outdo ourselves. But thankfully, because they knew that they were getting renewed for a, a third and fourth season, they blended season three and four, one flowing storyline, which in my opinion was very well done and yeah. redeemed a lot of the damage that I think season two did. Yeah. And backtracking for just like two seconds, I actually think that that's, one of my bigger criticisms of season one, I feel that it is more disjointed from the rest of the series because Anon or Amon, sorry, (laughs) is fighting for, you know, the equalist movement or whatever. 
And that doesn't really flow into the Civil War or uh, the spirit portals or any of that. But then from there on out, we see the spirit portals lead to Zahir, which leads to Kovira. And so it just really makes a lot of flowing sense. Like the, the, the fallout from the previous conflict leads to the next conflict, which I really like about the next three books. But that first season, it, it doesn't, it doesn't flow into anything else. We never see what comes of the equalist movement, so. Or even how it impacts Republic City. Yeah, that's exactly, that's exactly uh, what I was basically saying before, is that, you know, it, it, I, I didn't like that, it, that season one especially was just, it's just own contained storyline. And I get that the writers, the production people behind the show didn't know at the time that they were going to get a second, third, and fourth season, but still, you know, I it is very much possible that with Avatar uh, season one that they didn't know that they were going to get a second and third season, but they still had that cliffhanger at the end of season one with, you know, teasing uh, Azula and, you know, just how dangerous and uh, evil she can be. But uh, talking more about season one, I don't want to address this, and Tabitha, you actually already did address my biggest issue with season don't one. Don't say pro-bending. Don't say pro-bending. The love diamond. Oh. Okay. Uh, yes. The so love disturbing. diamond. It oh. was just so stupid. Just three love triangles. Three. You got Mako, Bolin, and Korra. Mako, Korra, and Asami. Which we'll, we'll get to. We'll get to all these characters later. And a third love triangle between Tenzin, his wife, and Lin. Three okay, that, love triangles. Three. That, okay, but that one is very passable, and even How? in a lot of How ways. How is it passable? Because it it adds it. Okay. Whereas I think the other love triangles detract from the character depth that we see in, you know, Asami, Mako, whatever. I mean, Mako's entire identity for a long time. It's hard for him to shake the fact that Love Triangle is his identity. Truly. Yeah. Uh, but I actually think that the, the rocky past that Beifong, that Lin, and Tenzin had, I think, I think it deepens their character meaningfully at the beginning. And then later on when we don't need, we don't need that tension anymore. It's, it's not really mentioned again, and I, and I don't think that that's because it was just a tool for character development, but it does serve very well for character development, I think. But that's also the most you'll hear me say defending any romance going on in this, because, you know, it's, 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 not. it's not good. I, I actually don't see what happened between Beifong and Tenzin as part of my love, love triangle, love diamond dilemma. I actually do kind of just see it as sort of backstory. We don't see them have any romantic tension necessarily. We more see uh, sort of the fallout of a previous relationship, which makes kind of for an interesting time because, you know, Tenzin wants to be helpful and wants to come alongside the police department, but the chief of police is his ex-girlfriend. Whoa! So, you know, whatever, that's kind of cheesy, but I think it makes for some interesting uh, conflict in their relationship, and also 
works to bring out a different side of both of their personalities. And it's where I kind of started to fall in love with Tenzin, as he is yeah, one of the best honestly. characters in the series. Yeah, so Tenzin is, like, he's kind of like the Iroh of this series, though I hesitate to make that, yeah, I hesitate to make that conclusion entirely, because I very much love both characters, and I love them for different reasons, but they both represent wisdom, and I, I think that you initially see him as a very calm, wise, rigid, put-together monk, and then every once in a while he has these little angry outbursts, which I think really like accentuate his character well. Which I think the Beifong tension adds to that. Yeah, and then you see the Beifong tension, and you're like, oh, wait a second. It's like the beginnings of that you're seeing. He hasn't always made good decisions, or just like later on when you see that as the favored son of Aang, he didn't have the best relationship yeah. with his siblings. You start to see a more humanized version of him, and I, I really appreciate it. So Tenzin is my favorite character from Korra. He's one of the few characters that I actually emotionally connected with and really liked. And I love, I like that he is basically the opposite of Iroh. Iroh, to me, is someone who I should strive to be. And I can learn from Iroh, uh, you know, by following his actions. But Tenzin, and this is something that I love, Tenzin is someone who I shouldn't strive to be. I see Tenzin's, act, Tenzin's actions, and I should do the exact opposite. Because Tenzin is a terrible role model, a not that great teacher, and not a he could be a better uh, brother to Kaya and Bumi. And I love that. I love that they gave us a mentor character who was flawed, who was a lot more dynamic and interesting. I love Iroh to death. But I really like that they didn't just give us Iroh 2.0 in Korra. And Tenzin is actually an interesting, flawed character. I really like that a lot. And J.K. Simmons did a really good job with the voice actor. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, the, the choice of J.K. Simmons as voice actor and, and also the narrator. And th that, was, that, that, was, that was brilliant, I think. And it's one of the things that sealed my initial love for the show. Uh, I don't know if I fully agree with your your analysis of Tenzin to be who you shouldn't strive to be. I do agree with you in saying that he's a flawed mentor. Absolutely. Though, I, I appreciate that he is pretty teachable, right? He, he, he sees his shortcomings, maybe not like immediately, but he sees his shortcomings, he admits his shortcomings, and then he strives to make the change. I think that's a very admirable quality that he has. I will say, maybe he's not the best teacher. He hasn't had to teach very much, for instance. And then all of a sudden, we see him teaching the Avatar. And then in season three, we see him teaching a whole nation. So it's kind of a trial by fire for him for teaching. But I think in terms of, yeah, a mentor, I, I think... I think he's still admirable and something that I would strive to be. I so so maybe I didn't uh, phrase what I said correctly, but basically uh, I agree with everything that you uh, said, William. And that's I guess that's that's kind of what I was trying to get at is that 
uh, Tenzin, you know, basically not being a great mentor and, and, uh, but learning from his shortcomings is basic. That's basically what I meant when I said that Tenzin is someone who I, in a way, shouldn't strive to be. Okay. But, uh, going back, but more things about season one. So I'm basically just going to be jumping around the whole season because I just have so many uh, negative things to say about it. And <laughs> I'm just going to, I can't really just go like narr uh, narratively just addressed by issues. I just have to pick them off one by one randomly uh, because, well, no, I'm, I'm actually going to be saying them, my issues with season one from the stuff that made me the most angry to the stuff that made me the least angry. And okay. Besides the love diamond, and Korra being, uh, in my opinion, a pretty bad protagonist. Speaking of Korra, I hated how conveniently she learned airbending. I hated that so much. I actually much. did too. You actually? I, I don't think that I have like that much despise for it, but. I actually disliked it as well. I think that there should have been a more air nomad reason besides uh, I can't defend myself in any other way but bending. So here, I magically get my last bending power. Um, I mean, we, we do have a, a bit of a precedent for it in the past. Toph discovers the ability to invent, the ability to metal bend from being in a time where she really needs to. Uh, later on, we see Bolin discover that he's a lava bender because, and I will admit, this wasn't a very satisfying way for him to discover his lava bending. I wish they had given him a little bit more in this, but he needed to in the moment, and so he discovered that he was a lava bender. Ah. Yeah, but yeah, but lava yeah. bending and metal bending are cool. Like Bolin, <laughs> I'll get to Bolin later. But lava bending is actually really, I think it's really cool. And, but. No, it is cool. But so is airbending. Uh, air, to be honest, air is my least favorite element of the four. It's one of the most fun to watch in a duel, I think. Oh man, when we got to see Tenzin battle Zaheer full out, that was amazing. Yeah, it was. It was amazing. But, but yeah, I just... And, I, and I think the, the agile way, the agile way that airbenders move and, you know, being like the leaf, so different than earthbenders who adopt a sturdy stance and become immovable, and they're meant to be opposite elements, and they're so opposite in their, in their style that, I don't, I don't know, even though I personally like earthbending the most. I wish I was an earthbender. I definitely really like watching airbenders. And I think we can all agree that waterbending is the most powerful by far. But going back to airbending, I just, I just found it really annoying just how quickly Korra was able to learn airbending just because Amon was about to kill Mako. And what I also really hated was that so when she lost uh, her three uh, other three elements, I actually was not predicting that. I, I thought that, you know, I thought that the way that the season was going, that she was just going to get away, you know, uh, she was going to be able to learn airbending and that she was going to be able to learn all four elements 
by the end of the first season and be, you know, the most powerful avatar ever or whatever. But then when Amon actually took the bending away from her other three elements, I was like, whoa, like, it, well, like season one has been crap, but they're actually doing something like interesting and compelling and to make Korra a better character. And then at the end, when Katara couldn't heal Korra, I thought that, you know, maybe, oh, that's going to be interesting to see uh, Korra being an avatar who only knows air. Like, ooh, or and maybe she'll le relearn fire, uh, water, and earth later on in the next uh, three seasons. Like, I was actually re getting really excited. And then, all of a sudden, Avatar Aang shows up and says his whole, cor says his corny line about, oh, in our worst moments is when we are our are, are strongest or whatever. And then he she gets her bending back. She's able to go back into the Avatar state. And then she can give Lin and other uh, benders their bending back? What? I, that so is here so where, convenient and stupid. I am so, this is where I'm so upset that they only knew that they were going to have the one season. Because... I think a pretty interesting story. I don't think I would have wanted to watch her relearn all the elements because uh, William was making the point over here. It'd just be watching the same show, ultimately, and I don't want to watch Avatar 2.0. I want to watch a new story. And so, but I would think it would be really cool for her to go on a journey, and maybe this is what would tie into Avatar 1, how to get bending back how do we like maybe she has an interaction with a with a lion turtle or something like that and then she understands bending again or something like that something way more interesting than oh within the same episode she has her bending back <laughs> at least extended a couple episodes where it makes it a little more interesting exactly right. exactly yeah and and so again i don't have a ton of criticisms about the show but one of my criticisms is criticisms is the bad stuff that happens to Korra in seasons one and season two uh they don't stick you know we don't and it's for the reason that we already described they didn't know if they're going to get renewed it's not until we get to season three going into season four that we see all of this trauma has hit her hard and I, like Avatar The Last Airbender uh they don't shy away from talking about tough subjects like you know PTSD and being able to deal with depression and that healing isn't an overnight thing, although they kind of showed it to be an overnight thing in the first two books. We eventually get to see that it's not an overnight thing and she never really healed from those things because she didn't have to. She wasn't really confronted with all the bad stuff yet. So while I know that it was only because they didn't know if they're getting renewed for another season, you, you could really say that that her not having to deal with the consequences was a way to kind of make it so that she has this triple whammy in the beginning of book four and she has to deal with the trauma that she's experienced the past three. Which for character development, I think four is just the best book. I think it is so good. I think everything that happens with Korra is interesting. Uh, again, with the villain, I think that, like, so I, I think there is, like, an arc for Aang where he's, like, discovering how to be the Avatar. 
for Korra, I think she's discovering how to be herself besides the Avatar throughout the whole series. And in book four, we really see the culmination of that, where we can see her starting to discover herself and who she is outside of being just the Avatar. And um, I just think that it's a really good story, well-written. I don't really even care about the villain as long as I'm watching what's happening with Korra emotionally, her time with Toph, like everything happening there, I thought was just very good. So uh, we'll get, so I'll get into my opinions on uh, books uh, three and four later. I, uh, I will say kind of a spoiler, but I also uh, really enjoyed the, uh, book four, uh, not so much for the character development necessarily, but we'll get into that later. But going back into book one, so uh, William, you mentioned uh, when I said uh, another thing that I didn't like, you were like, please don't, uh, please don't be pro-bending. <laughs> pro bending is actually surprisingly so my favorite part my favorite part of season one yeah, it very much it hooks you the same way that uh maybe not quite to the same deal but like as quidditch does in harry potter you you get a sense for the rules and you become invested you know your team's gonna win but you you have to figure like how's it gonna happen you know yeah, yeah, and something that I, so I love pro-bending, I think that every single, so the bending overall in Korra is pretty cool to look at, but especially, but most of it is just a rehash of what we saw in the first Avatar show, but pro-bending was something new, kind of new that they did with bending that was really cool, although, uh, Going back to Korra again, I have so many complaints about Korra specifically as a character, but uh, in episode, I don't know if you guys remember, in episode two, she's trying to learn the proper air stances and, you know, Tenzin is encouraging her to be, you know, more patient and like a leaf and all that stuff. And then she has, uh, towards the end of the episode two, uh, she sneaks out to the match and Tenzin actually sees her fight and then uh, she's losing and then all of a sudden, she just suddenly starts, like, moving like an airbender, you know, like a leaf in the wind and, you know, doing a proper air stances and she's able to help the fire ferrets win the match. And I'm just like, wait. And, and that was one of the first warning signs for me in episode two of the entire series that the show was not going to impress me nearly as much as Avatar because that was just so rushed. I mean, okay, I'll I'll agree. It was slightly cheesy, and yeah, it has a kind of like there was a slight eye roll moment to that. However, you also need to remember that Cora is exceptionally gifted. The fact that she even encountered resistance with airbending really is just to just to show where she's deficient as as in terms of her personality and her character. It is not really to show that she doesn't have the strength for it because she is gifted in just about every way except just too hard-headed, well, right? no, no, I think here's really what I think. Again, I do not think her arc is, is how do I become the Avatar because she has been doing an incredible job with that already. She, like you said, she mastered three out of the four elements when we first met her. Like she gets airbending like right away, basically. She had some resistance, but it was almost none. 
Where she lacks is understanding the spiritual world, which Aang was exceptionally gifted in, like where he was gifted in, in the spiritual realm, she was gifted in bending. And, and her arc is way more about getting in tune with her emotions, with the spiritual realm, and who she is as a person outside of the Avatar. I think we're not watching the same show we were with the last series where we're watching someone become the Avatar. She already is the Avatar when we meet her. That, I, that, is, that is a very good point, Tabitha, because I will be honest, I was the only reason why I uh, was uh, interested in Korra uh, somewhat and why I... Uh, this I finally decided to watch it. Well, one factor of it was because you guys highly recommended it. I had friends back in New Jersey who highly recommended it. But another big factor with me was that I was going in, maybe to a naive degree, but I was going in into Korra expecting it to completely be a sequel to Avatar in almost every way. And it was jarring for me personally to see that uh, there were things that were presented in a very different, albeit unique, but still different, and in my opinion, not necessarily satisfying way. Hmm. But uh, but going back, so but going back to uh, book one, and so I remember, I remember in the Avatar uh, top five favorite Avatar characters. Uh, episode, William, you mentioned that your favorite character overall of the whole universe of, of you know, the whole Avatar universe is Bolin. And I have to say, Bolin is the were, is the character I hate the most in Korra. Oh. I'm definitely going to fight you on this. Uh, in, in my third, because this was my third rewatching, I think I actually changed my answer to Tenzin. Tenzin is actually my favorite character uh, for several reasons, personal reasons, lots, lots of things. I like Tenzin. Bolin is my second favorite, and I will stick to my guns on that. So let me have it. Tell, change that's, my mind. And that's perfectly okay. It's perfectly okay to have that opinion, but to <laughs> me, to me, Bolin is annoying, unfunny, uh, the voice actor is okay, you know, I, actually the voice actor does a pretty good job, but Bolin is annoying, unfunny, and he just, you know, like he, the, the main thing with him was that, uh, he, he did get slightly better in the later seasons, but the main thing was that he was only really in season one to, uh, add more drama in the love triangle between him, Mako, and Korra. That was literally his only purpose in season one. Like there, like yeah, and it doesn't. He had no other stakes in the plot in season one specifically. Sure, and it doesn't get much better in in book two either because exactly. he kind of becomes this mover star, and that's it. Probably wasn't the best for him. Although I kind of wish that was an episode. Like I like that he was a mover star. I wish that it was an episode or two episodes or something like that. The fact that that's his arc for the whole season to me was a disservice to everything that Bolin is, but. I mean, you say he's unfunny. I think his jokes hit about the same way Sokka's jokes hit. What? Are you serious? No way. No, 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 no. They no. have the exact same energy. Funnier than Bolin. Uh, I think you're looking at it through a nostalgic lens then, sir, because I believe that their jokes have about the same 
quality of humor, which is to say, I like them. They have a different tone. So Bolin and Isaka comes off as like, I'm a tough guy, and I'm going to be tough guy. And then who and does he hurt? He hurts himself. Right, that's, right. That's Sokka's thing. Bolin comes off as, I'm the sweet guy. I'm really cute, and I'm really sweet, and I have this fluffy little animal ferret. I got, I got into an accidental relationship with... <laughs> <laughs> and oh my gosh, how adorable is he when he catches Cora and Mako kissing? Like, again, I hate the love diamond, but the way that he scampers off with his little hands... Like, tucked close to his chest, drops the flowers, crying, and he runs away all dramatic the other direction. That is adorable. That moment, that moment made me audibly groan. Because I was just, oh, I really did grow up. <laughs> He's so cute. But also think about the fact, and this, this bears saying, because it hasn't been said yet with the love diamond. These are all teenagers, right? So... This this was meant to be to a slightly more mature audience than Avatar The Last Airbender, although, as we've learned, Avatar The Last Airbender aged very well. This was meant to be a, a slightly more mature show because they knew that their their fan base had grown up as well. And having them be teenagers, particularly Korra, who's... I, I don't even know if she's seen a boy her age before. <laughs> It's a little believable that it all happens. That's not to say that I liked it. I don't really like I don't really like angsty love relationships in anything I watch, but it is, it is pretty believable that it all happens. I I respectfully disagree. I found it very far-fetched and annoying and I'm I just Bolin just just Bolin and Habu and Oogie, like <laughs> Like, most of the animals in Korra were just annoying to me. Like, I just want them to go away. Like, I never liked... <gasps> okay, what did Oogie even do to you, right? He did almost nothing. Oogie is a ripoff... Uh, Oogie is a bland, lame ripoff of Appa. Right, he's not meant to replace Appa, even. He's... He's just meant to be another of the same species. In fact, I think they specifically give him less screen time because they're not trying to do Appa 2.0. They just have another Sky Bison. I mean... And oh my gosh! The fire ferret is so cute. He's adorable. <laughs> okay, if you like Momo, then he's perfectly fine. I will say he's a little less uh, essential to the team yeah. than Momo was. Momo uh, helped them out quite a bit more. Pabu had a couple nice times when he, like, bit through bindings and stuff like that. But, but in general, he serves the same adorable purposes that Momo did. And I would actually say he was cuter than Momo in most situations, though, I mean, take that for what it's worth, right? What's funny is that I have a friend in New Jersey, and uh, I think her favorite character, uh, well, or at least, like, one of her favorite characters is also Bolin. And I, I get why, you know, I get why people like Bolin, but I just, especially for the first two seasons, I could not stand the guy, and I wanted him to die. <gasps> oh my goodness! Colton, you've cut me deep. I'm sorry, I, I just did not want him around. I wanted him to either die or just go away somehow. Like, I really, just really, I, I, I never truly liked him until, well... Once he learns lava bending, I was like, 
okay, that's kind of cool. And I guess you can stick around Bolin because you know Lava Bending now. But just... Uh, and, and, and season four, they did do something kind of interesting with him, involving him working with Kavira, but we'll get to season four later. But as much as I dislike Bolin, the most useless and character with the biggest wasted potential is Asami. Oh. Um. Yeah, I mean, they didn't give her as much character development as I would have liked to have seen. Yeah, she was definitely a great character. She was meant to be like, kind of Suki 2.0, but in her own way. And she and she was a good character. I do think she was still useful, but I also agree that he that she wasted yeah, wasted wasted potential. She she could have been bigger. Uh, I think especially if Mako dropped into the background a little bit more because Mako's the character that I don't care about. Yeah, same. I um, really don't care about Mako. If if Mako dropped into the background a little bit more and a little bit more of his screen time was replaced with Asami uh, yeah, I, I, I think that would have been a positive change. Especially considering they're pushing this whole thing that she and Cora had some romantic relationship, which I don't see. Uh, I mean, I kind of get the I hints mean, that they throw out there. Yeah, it was definitely intentional. Me... It was definitely intentional on their part that they did it. However, I... I don't know. To give that much screen time to these other failed relationships, yeah. and then if you actually want this to be the, yes. the sticking relationship, why didn't it get a little bit more screen time? Right, like Korra and Aang had a lot of those Korra. quiet... Yeah, uh, Katara. <laughs> Katara and Aang had a lot of those, like, quiet moments together, like, oh, will they, won't they? Will they, won't they? Like, if this is gonna be her main love interest, why did she not get more screen time and character development? Because as of right now, it's like, oh, yeah, she's B.A., she's really attractive, and she's pretty. <laughs> yeah, it kind of seemed a little bit like it was... Actually, I heard a YouTuber talk about it pretty well. They wanted to toss something for the LGBTQ community, and... They didn't have the balls, quite frankly, to put it in the main part of their series. So they tossed it in at the end where they didn't have to deal with the fallout, right? The show's over. It doesn't matter anymore. So if there is fallout because some people don't like characters of different sexuality, then they don't have to deal with it. The show's over. They, they really didn't have the balls to address it fully if that was where they wanted to go. It was just kind of a, a toss in there just because... Yeah, I do wish that either the uh, writers in Nickelodeon had uh, the balls to actually go uh, forward with it more or just, you know, or just, you know, they, or just not have it, you know. But I, I do think that they could, that there was potential for Kornis and Asami to really have a strong relationship and an interesting one considering how different they are from each other personality-wise. But... I, I, I didn't like that they just threw it in in the final uh, yeah. in the finale and, ju and that it was yeah. like a quick like two-second thing of them holding hands. Yeah. Also, another little side note, and this isn't really really speaking against that sort of like queer representation within media and stuff like that. This isn't me speaking against it, but th because also Kiyoshi canonically is also bisexual and it's kind of weird that they're setting a precedent for all of their female avatars to, I don't know, 
take on such masculine traits also because Kiyoshi was a fairly masculine depiction. Korra undoubtedly is. She's jacked. It's pretty awesome, actually. Yeah. But uh, they're kind of portraying it in a, in a way that only further pushes this idea that in order to be powerful, you have to be masculine yeah. and pursue women. And I, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't fully like the direction that that goes. And I think it's also powerful if you're trying to push something, uh, and Tabitha says this all the time about a lot of things, it would have been really powerful also if the main interest of the series was a really strong platonic friendship between, like, two female lead characters. You don't ever see that. Like, they go from... They had such a potential to go from, like, oh, we hate each other because of this love diamond and boys, uh, to go into this, like, fantastic female relationship, which, honestly, the first time watching through, William was watching me like a hawk, because he was like, he was like, how are you going to respond to this final scene where they walk into the portal together? And I was like, oh, that's so great! They're, like, going to go travel together and be friends, and, like, oh, like, that's amazing! I had no idea that they were bi, because it doesn't read like that to me. I think a more powerful reading of the situation, even though they didn't, they, you know, it's been, like, verified by the writers that it was bisexual relationship. Uh, I, I am so sad that it wasn't about these strong females getting together and being awesome friends and traveling the world together. Right. Like, not that's great. Not everything yeah, needs to exactly. be. Awesome. Yeah, so one element that I think that Korra actually did better than Avatar, in fact, the only thing that I think that Korra did better than Avatar, slightly better, was the music. Oh my uh, god, the music was incredible. I'm really surprised to hear you say that because I actually, I, I would probably say the opposite. I, I don't think that the music of, Legend of Korra had as deep a meaning as Avatar The Last Airbender, where you see that every episode of Avatar The Last Airbender, the intro music is different to foreshadow what's going on in the episode. If it's something that's going to be more soccer-related, you get to hear a little bit of his theme in the intro to Avatar The Last Airbender. Um, and that probably uh, lends itself to how episodic in nature Avatar The Last Airbender was, that they're able to kind of encapsulate each episode with a different theme. And I didn't see that level of depth in Korra's music. It was beautiful, but yeah. I personally have the same problem with the music that I have with Republic City as a whole. So I think that it is an incredible like world that they've created you look at avatar the last airbender and the world bending or the world building is impeccable like every nation has an in-depth culture and their bending is so tied to their culture and like all of the innovations that come out of their culture is so deeply tied to to the, who they are as a people now how on earth did we get to steampunk 1920s america when we had a bunch of Asian cultures to, you know, Asian-based cultures to create 
a, a republic city. That doesn't make any sense to me. I actually really don't like that aspect of world building. While I love 1920s America, I love swing music, and I think that it's a really fun place to set a story, I think that it was a bad idea to put it in Korra and in this world because it doesn't make sense. I don't understand where they got, I, I get where they get the technology in a lot of ways, but the culture, like, why are we in 1920s New York? It doesn't make sense, and it bothers me because something that was unique and interesting about Avatar The Last Airbender was that it wasn't Eurocentric. It wasn't, like, Americanized. It felt very otherworldly, like we had never been there before. It was so authentic feeling, like they did so much research into building those cultures. Now I feel like it got thrown away in a lot of ways in favor of another American show. <laughs> I, I, I get that. Yeah, I get that. There were elements of the setting and the world building and uh, the ex expansion on bending in certain ways that intrigued me. And there were other elements that disappointed me. Yeah, like the Americanization of the world uh, as it moves on from uh, Avatar Aang to Avatar Korra was a little disappointing to me. I, I did find uh, elements of the world building interesting, but there were also parts of it that just made me go like, uh, I don't know about this. Yeah, yeah for me, um, uh, I heard someone say it pretty well. The, the everything that happens in Legend of Korra feels very much like Avatar The Last Airbender ended and then everybody took to the internet and said, oh, that was awesome, but I'd love to see this and I'd love to see this. And, and then what Legend of Korra turned into is a fanfic uh, where it was like, wouldn't it be cool if Avatar The Last Airbender had been set in the Roaring Twenties? Or wouldn't it be cool, Avatar The Last Airbender plus <gasps> mechs? And um, those things fell a little flat, though I did find myself getting swept up in the, the vibes of the, the steampunk yeah. in the 1920s. I felt myself getting wrapped up in that every single time I saw a mech suit, it completely broke my immersion. And so while I do love some elements of the kind of fanfic feeling nature of Legend of Korra, because, hey, I like fanfics. I think they're fun. If you try to mash too many things together you will end up with something that has like trouble with continuity i feel and so that that's another criticism i guess i have of legend of Korra. yeah yeah no that that's uh yeah uh yeah that was very well said and uh i agree with that as well and uh i don't really i guess i don't really have oh actually one last thing i have to say about book one specifically so i actually uh really like uh tenzin's uh kids Except in book one, they were so annoying. But then in book two, three, and four, they got a lot more funny and interesting, especially Janora. I yeah, agree. Janora is my, my second or third favorite character. Th this watch through has really screwed up my whole order. So I can't put people in specific order, but Janora is most certainly one of my favorites. I think she represents a great character. And I think I agree with you. They were... They were more annoying. I think they were trying to figure out in book one uh, which comic idea. relief was going to stick. And they found what stuck and what kind of didn't. And then the pieces that didn't, they moved on to have relevant meaning within the plot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is, that is, uh, now that I 
now that you mention it, yeah, that is a, another issue I have with season one is that there were, there were, is that there were too many comic reliefs. And season one overall, I appreciated elements of season one. Uh, there were a lot of interesting ideas, but overall, I just really, really, it left a bad taste in my mouth, and I really did not like it. I were, If I were to rate this out of 10, I'd probably give it like a 4. Oh. Yeah, I did not yeah. like it. Well, then I'm going to hate to hear what you have to say about book two. Oh. So, book two. So, book two. A lot of people, uh, I saw online a lot of uh, people who are fans of Korra and a few friends of mine say that book two is the worst. And I have to disagree. I actually kind of enjoyed book two. There were only a few things that I really didn't like about book two. Uh, Unalak, uh, Bolin still being his annoying uh, self. I really, uh, I really didn't like uh, that, you know, certain uh, thing, elements about the spirit world. Like, ideas were introduced a little too quickly. And also the big uh, battle at the end was just too much. Crash. Uh, so here's my thing. Book two. I think the beginning was great. I liked the Civil War. I even liked Unalak at that point. I thought it was kind of interesting that he was like kind of coercing Korra into doing his bidding. I thought that that was really interesting. And oh my gosh, I loved Avatar 1. I thought it was yes, Avatar beautiful. Yes, but here's my issue. I thought it was beautifully animated. I thought the story was incredible. I love the characters. I love the the plot. I love I love everything about it except that it is in the official lore of Avatar the Last Airbender now. I think that it does not have a place in this world because I think that it firstly over over explains something that is meant to be a mystery. I think that things like we were taught in the first series that the people learned from nature how to bend. And while we see Avatar 1 learning to fire bend with the dragons and we even see him do the dance of the sun or whatever that dance was called with the dragons, I'm a little sad that they weren't like in tune with nature and so therefore they learn from the badger moles and the moon and the dragons like that's way more fascinating to me and also we see spirits acting like people which has never been something that we've seen before we've never really understood the motives of the spirits they're mystery they're mysterious and strange and otherworldly but they feel like little people that are just cute in Korra, and that bothers me. So I love the story. I don't think it has a place in Avatar The Last Airbender. I have to well, I, I, I guess everything you are saying is valid, but I, at that point, I, like, season one had left a bad taste in my mouth, and book one, and book two, even though I was getting a little bit more intrigued, the episodes with Avatar 1, I loved so much that whatever flaws I had with it, I just ignored because I was just loving <laughs> Avatar 1's story so much. Like, yeah, like and if, that's pretty valid. And if yeah. book two was only Avatar about Avatar 1, it would get a 10 out of 10 from me. 
But because we had all this other stuff involving uh, Unalak and unfortunately uh, Bolin with uh, uh, Bolin still being there, uh, I have to give it, I don't know, like a six out of 10. Yeah, I, I loved it again. And it was so enjoyable to watch, but. Um, yeah, I, and then the whole second half of yeah. that season was just wretched. I hated it so much. I mean, I thought that the, like, her meditating in the tree was pretty cool and getting to see all her memories and getting to, like, realize who Juan was. And I even kind of like that Rava lives inside the Avatar, and that's why the cycle is continuing. But again, I wish it stayed a mystery. I thought that that was more intriguing. I suppose. Yeah. Something that I really liked about book two was actually Tenzin and his siblings, their journey. Mm -hmm. While I think yeah. it was a little, it was, yeah. a, it was a little prolonged, perhaps. Yeah. And maybe it could have been maybe a little more succinct, but I really appreciated that. And them going into the, you know, Tenzin really struggling with, I'm supposed to be this, I should be a guru, you know, like, I'm the, I'm the most advanced airbender. But he really struggles with the spiritual side of it in a way that he hasn't admitted to other people. And then being able to go into the, the, the fog of, of the forgotten or whatever it's called, and he comes to term with the fact that he has his own identity outside of being Aang's son. I mean, I loved, I loved that whole arc. Yeah, that was exciting. I, I, I really enjoyed uh, Tenzin with his cousins as well. Although I do find, I, I do think that it should have just been either Kaya or Bumi. I don't think that both of them needed to be there. I think only one of them uh, needed to be there to, you know, get the point across of, you know, of them basically trying to show that, Oh, maybe oh, Aang wasn't the greatest dad and all that stuff. So yeah, I really like what they what they did with Tenzin and his siblings. But I wish that he just had one sibling because it did feel a bit overstuffed. Uh, book two overall felt um, a bit overstuffed. That's another issue. Yeah, for sure. For yeah, sure. that's another issue that I have uh, with book that's, two. But, but that's also something that I love about book three, because book two you have way too many plot lines running simultaneously. In book three, there are two plot lines. You know, there's the, the rebirth of the Air Nation, and then there's the here. And those are the only two plot lines really running the whole time. And I think something that I always, always say about sequels is they have a tendency to outdo themselves and overcomplicate things. Mm. When, when you can get back to the basics and simplicity without trying to reinvent the wheel, I think that's where you have success. Right. I think that they had too many stories to tell in book two um, and too many ideas that they kind of half told. Rava versus Vatu could have been its own story. Juan could have been its own story. The Civil War could have been its own story. Tenzin and his siblings could have been their own story. Janora could have been her own story. And then instead they put them, oh, and then the movers and everything was Varric, which, uh, haven't talked about him yet, but Varric is great. Love him. Yeah, we love Varric. Um, and, yeah, so he just told too many stories halfway, I think, in season two. Yeah. You know, I completely agree with everything they just said, including about Varric. Varric and Julie. 
oh, yeah. do the thing, Julie. <laughs> do the thing, Julie. I love, I, I love Varric so much. Varric is probably my third favorite character. No, he's my second favorite character. So it's, it's, uh, Tenzin, it's uh, Tenzin, uh, Varric, and uh, Janora, I guess. Like yeah. my three favorite. But uh, I want to, uh, we will talk more about book three in a second. But one last thing about book two is speaking of Janora, I really like what they did with Janora in book two. And I loved every t I loved uh, seeing Iroh in the spirit world. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. That was, that, that, was, that was definitely fan service, but I loved it anyway. And then when we later see Zuko's response to finding out that his uncle is in the spirit wilds, like, that's very cool. <laughs> right. And yeah. but one last thing I want to say about book two before we move on to book three, unless you guys have more to say about book two, but one last thing I'll say is that I surprisingly liked Unalak's kids, the uh, the one that... <laughs> Me uh, too! The Eska and Deska, the uh, yeah. one that uh, Bolin got romantically involved with, I surprisingly liked them. <laughs> like, and what, like, when they first Only good romance in the show. <laughs> okay, that's not... That's definitely <laughs> not true. <laughs> no, it's pretty good. I, I like her whole, her whole shtick, yeah. which is, you, you know, you see it again come up in book four, where she... Where, she she says about uh, Kovira, I see that you've gotten a new girlfriend. He's like, oh, no, that's actually, that's my boss. And she's like, what's the difference? <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, a fun, it's a fun shtick. Yeah, it is. And her proposal to him with, like, the death proposal necklace and her chasing after him and Varric in the boat. And, oh, my gosh, when Bolin goes to Varric and is like, you don't suppose that this boat could outrun a very angry ex ex girlfriend waterbender do you and then he says why do you think i built the thing <laughs> that, that was so really, that was pretty funny that, that was pretty funny as much as, uh, as much as i don't like bolin uh pairing him and Varric together often was a very smart choice by the writers I yeah i thought so too i think that they're his uh bolin's naivete yeah which is I still think precious, yep. and uh, and Varric's shrewd, cunning, cohesive, co coercive. Yeah. yeah, pairing the two of them honestly just makes for a good time. Yeah, y yeah just every time Varric and Julie appeared on screen, I got a lot more interested. <laughs> but moving so on, yeah, but moving on to book three. Book three, personally, is my favorite out of the four books. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. it is the it is the most focused. It is the least stuffed. Mm. It has the most interesting character development. It has my the only villain that I like, Zahir, and Kai is awesome. <laughs> yeah, he's cute. Ka Kai is like my fourth favorite character. Kai is great. <laughs> so, so another another thing that Legend of Korra is pushing is this this whole redemption arc you see that Sue Beifong in book three you get to see that she she had a she had she made some bad decisions in her past and she had to deal with some of those consequences but through those consequences it strength strengthened her to the person that she is uh you see Kai has his redemption arc you, you get you get to see this theme and 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 um Cora mm -hmm. you get to see this theme running throughout that that shows 
hey, you, you might not have started out on the right foot, but there's always, there's always a second chance. Yeah, I and I love the Metal City. I thought that that was really very cool from a world-building perspective. I thought that it was so interesting that, that uh, Toph's daughter ends up taking her, her artistry and creating this massive wonder of the world um, out of metal. I just think that that's so cool. Yeah, I also really like Metal City, uh, Sue, and Opal. But yeah, Opal's one, great. But one thing I did not like about the show overall, not just in uh, book uh, three or four, is how they, uh, how they showed the original characters. We only oh. saw Sokka and Aang a couple of times. Katara was there just to heal. And they did my girl tough dirty. They, Why? they they made her they made her an extremely unlikable, rude, awful uh, person, mother to Lynn and Sue, awful uh, mentor to Cora. And I get that you know Toph isn't the most likable character overall, but they made her so much more just bad in Korra, and they, they did, they did talk dirty. She's always been abrasive, yeah, actually, and she though, was overcompensating for her childhood in, in how she parented. She had bad parents, therefore she was a bad parent. It totally makes sense. And, and let's, let's, yeah, let's really examine it. What about her ability to, uh, handle uh, interpersonal conflict made you think that she would be anything different in Legend of Korra. Sure, she grew up. She went from, you know, being an angry rebel to being an angry chief of police. Interesting switch there. And then she went just to being a recluse. But I do feel like her character stayed consistent throughout. For sure. I feel the same way. And Maybe that's the flaw, is that she stayed pretty consistent, and she didn't grow into this old, wise stage, but I think... Because she's a rock. Yeah, she, she is. She's sturdy as a rock. And I, and I think that they did her pretty well. Also, I liked the cameos. I thought it was cool yeah. that we kind of got to see some of them, but others we didn't. It's very realistic. Some of them would still be alive. I thought it was tasteful, because if... if the, the, if, if they thought that they were truly only going to have one season, the temptation to throw in all of the cameos mm -hmm. in that season must have been immense. They waited until the very last season to show Toph. And I think that was a good amount of self-restraint yeah. on their part. Also, I loved Katara's part in book four in Korra's healing. She plays a really important role in what's going on. And also Zuko, the way that he turned out and getting to see that he was an incredible ruler his whole life and that now he's still kicking butt and taking names in his old age and still giving wise advice, um, just like his uncle did. I, I just think... I think the cameos were tasteful and likable. Also, seeing Aang when he was older was really cool. <laughs> yeah, I wish we got to see, and this is just, you know, me nerding out. I wish we got to see a little bit more of his personality. We really yeah. only got to see 
points when he was like laying down the law and stuff yeah. like that. The best of his personality that you get to see is you get to see the 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 vendor, the, mm -hmm. the stall vendor who has the picture of adult Aang. And he's still doing his little trick. Yeah, he's still doing his little air trick. Um, that's the most you get to see of Aang's adult personality. Yeah. And I, I do wish that we had seen a little bit yeah. more. Yeah, I'm, yeah, no, I, I I get what you guys are saying with uh, Toph and uh, Aang, but I don't know. I just, I just wish that, yeah, I, I, I just really, it was just really uh, off-putting to me what they did with Toph. And I, I do, even though she is a very, uh, very, what's the word? She, she, I, I wasn't expecting her to grow a whole lot, but I was expecting her to be slightly more mature and better and <laughs> not, you know, commit a crime by hiding the facts, by purposely ripping up the paperwork uh, and report of her daughter Sue committing a crime. Like, that was just, like, that was where things, uh, like, that was when I uh, really started to get worried about what they were doing with Toph. I don't know, yeah, I think... Funny how uh, police can be corrupt. <laughs> oh. I also think it's interesting, though, that you like Tenzin because he's flawed, but you don't like the fact that they took your favorite characters from the original series and made them flawed as well. I think it's really, I think it's good that they made, they showed you, hey, just because you love them doesn't mean they're perfect. She was so far from perfect, and all of them are far from per perfect. Katara maybe comes off as kind of perfect because she, she's a little bit of a Mary Sue character. She is, and she's always been that way. But, um, but yeah, I, I think, I think that showing their flaws, especially Toph, and since her children were such an, in, uh, an important part of the series, and Aang, with his children being such an important part of the series, we got to see some of their flaws because children, while they love their parents, they are scarred and impacted probably most by the flaws of their parents. So, yeah. I actually, did, I actually did like uh, what they did with Aang, uh, you know, like, but them showing that Aang wasn't the best dad. My issue was that they didn't show enough of Aang. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that, though. I think, I think that they brought the problem, they, like, teased the problem out so that we could fully see it enough with just the discourse between yeah. the siblings. But, uh, yeah, a little bit more Aang would have been nice. I, mean, I think they were trying not to make the mistake of the Star Wars. <laughs> Uh, series in leaning on nostalgia. I think that they were forging their own path and they did have cameos, which was good and I think important, but they didn't want to lean on that and they wanted to make sure it was its own story. So I respect their decision to leave Aang out of it for the most part. I am glad that when they revealed Toph in her old age, yeah. She was the same stature as she was when she was yeah. in the main series. Because we see in flashbacks that she was a normal height person. But thankfully, she's, she has shrunken back down to her original stature. And it helps um, uh, preserve her in my mind as, as you know, the short character. little yeah. sturdy gal. Yeah. 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 I mean, it, it's interesting to have the, that uh, all that you said about Old, uh, characters we love having flaws because that's exactly why I loved what they did with Luke in The Last Jedi, which was mm -hmm. one of the most controversial decisions, creative decisions from that movie. Right. A lot of people really didn't like 
what they did with Luke in The Last Jedi. And I'm now me saying it out loud, me uh, echoing my dislike for what they did with Toph echoes what a lot of people are saying yeah. in The Last Jedi. So I think it's very interesting that you know, you brought that up, and uh, <laughs> I, I wonder why. I do I do wonder, it is interesting that I like what they did with Luke in The Last Jedi, but I don't like what they did with Toph in The Legend of Korra. Yeah, interesting. Interesting. But, uh, but yeah, so, uh, but going back to book three, uh, I really don't have many issues with book three. Uh, I think I have one minor issue and one major issue. So, uh, I, so book three is my favorite. Uh, I actually really uh, love that one a lot. But one minor issue that I have is that certain elements do feel a bit rushed. And like, like the stuff with the Earth Queen felt a tad bit rushed. Not, not to the point of it, you know, being like annoying, but it did feel like they could have developed certain things with the Earth Queen a bit more. But my real big issue Zaheer being able to freaking fly. As soon as Zaheer started flying, I almost, I was watching it on my, uh, on my, uh, tablet. Uh, as soon as he started to fly, I almost grabbed my tablet and threw it against the room in anger. Well, here's the thing. Imagine what every, Earth bending uh, has metal bending and now they added lava bending fire bending has uh l lightning bending and maybe even something else because you saw when she when cora ended up washed up on the shores in the fire nation they used fire to like they used fire in an interesting way on her that was like healing or medicinal and that was very interesting to me Waterbending, don't even get me started in all of its different applications. It has like five different applications or something like that. Air has nothing. It's, it's pretty spiritually tied, stuff like that, but it's not spiritually tied the way that waterbending is where you can and energy spirit bend. bending. Energy bending, um, yeah, yeah. Air has nothing. Air kind of needed something. And if you were going to give it something, I think that's one of the more tame things that you could have given it. Right, we've to been seeing how many ton bison fly through the air magically all this time, and they learn from the sky bison how to airbend. So I think it actually is kind of a logical evolution. And he had talked about it for a long time, and he had just lost his girlfriend. So, like, his tie to this earthly realm or whatever had kind of ceased to be or whatever. So, I think it, it I, 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 yeah, I, think, I don't I have think, a problem with it. Yeah, I think they're, they're, how they brought it about was pretty good. Yeah. I liked how devoted he was to the teachings of uh, Guru Lahima. Yeah. And I think that, I, I think they brought it about pretty artfully. I, mm -hmm. I, I don't understand, I, I, I respect your opinion, but I don't understand it. It, it's, it just felt something that was, I, I know that, you know, Zaheer is a character who, even though he just learned uh, airbending, he was basically already skilled at it, even though he just inherited airbending due to the spirit portals being opened and all that, and Boomy and other characters being able to inherit airbending. Zaheer was already skilled at it, even though he just inherited it because he had been studying it for years and decades. 
But still, well, the whole concept of flying just felt rushed and shoehorned and dumb. And I just don't see it as a logical e expansion on airbending. Well, so again, I think that they needed to expand on airbending in some way because it truly, I mean, you even said you think it's the most boring of all the bending. Well, because it doesn't have any other application. So I think the expansion was a little necessary if you're going to go around expanding everything else. Mm -hmm. I think that the fact that he's naturally gifted at it when he starts, I don't think that's very strange because we, we see all of them. No, that, uh, that's booming. what I said. Yeah, no, that, that's, oh, yeah, yeah. that's what I said. I, I, I was commenting that uh, him being, it made sense to me from okay. a writing standpoint that he was naturally uh, gifted at airbending right away because even though he just inherited that power, he had been learning about it and like, uh, like studied it for decades. But oh, yeah. just a concept specifically on flying is dumb to me. Okay, fair enough. Mm. I think all, all of them were very gifted at airbending to start, though. I mean, Boomy. No, definitely not Boomy. Definitely Boomy not. Stop, definitely Boomy not. stopped his entire, he hovered in the middle of a terminal velocity fall. He stopped his descent. I, I don't know. Uh, I, I think that they, they started out a little powerful. I, I feel like the spirit energies, whatever, gave them an oomph to start their journey. Uh, I don't know that I agree with that. I think it was cool that Boomy held his own against the others in the Red Lotus, even though he's like a noob. Yeah. I thought that that was kind of cool. Um, and, oh my gosh, that whole fight scene, firstly, was totally baller. It was. Secondly, was very sad. Oh my gosh. And we were watching a commentator kind of go through Cora. And one of the things that he talked about is Tenzin is so well loved and we connect with him so much that they gave us the courtesy of when he finally got to the point where he was being beaten to pan away so we didn't have to watch like and that was such a heart-wrenching moment where we just like the as long as there's breath in my lungs you won't take this from me like wow what a what a guy that's when when Tenzin said that line I thought that Zaheer was going to do the same thing to Tenzin that he did to the Earth Queen where he was going to, where he was going to, where with the Earth Queen, oh. he, uh, he, you know, uh, basically took the yeah. air out of her lungs. And I thought he was going to do the same thing to Tenzin. I thought at that point that I was, was going to die like that. Oh, I would have screamed. I would have been so upset. And, and I, I actually had an inkling, especially when Tenzin said, as long as there's breath in my lungs. I really thought that he was going to, but I don't think he would have had the capacity to because Tenzin is in tune with the air um, in his body. I think that he would have had an easier time defending himself against Zaheer's attack um, in, in that way specifically, I think. In my heart, that's how I feel anyways. <laughs> Definitely more than the Earth Queen because the Earth Queen's not an airbender. Right. But, but referring to that pan away... I actually thought that that was more cool in a way because our uh, uh, viewers' imaginations, or at least my imagination, tends to be worse or more extreme than probably what the writers were intending. And so when they panned away, I imagined like something like really gruesome or awful happening to Tenzin. And I was like, dang it, like, why'd you have to pan away like that? 
Well, I mean, you already knew what was happening. You saw that he was getting water whipped and he was, you know, like getting hit with rocks. You already saw what was happening. The pan away was so that you didn't have to keep looking at it. It wasn't a prolonged shot. Yeah. We didn't have to watch him suffer for too long. We saw enough to kind of allude to what was happening. And that was enough for me. (laughs) Yeah. But uh, do you guys, uh, I, I, I think that's basically like, Book three, I love uh, almost everything about it. I only have a couple of minor issues and one major issue with the flying, but do you guys have anything else to say about uh, book three before we move on to book four? No. No. All right, so book four is, so uh, book three, seven out of 10, really good, just a few issues. Book four is also a 7 out of 10. It's my second favorite out of the four bo- uh, books. Yeah. But my biggest issue with uh, book four is that the latter half, the second half, was, to me, very predictable. Almost everything that happened, I was able to predict. I was able to predict that... Spirit lasers? Uh, sorry? Spirit lasers, you predicted that? yeah oh my gosh i did i hated lasers in this i i I kind of i kind of was able to predict that kavira would be able to build a weapon and that it wouldn't and that it wouldn't necessarily be a weapon that the heroes could i i couldn't predict exactly how or what the weapon was or like how like kavira would be able to uh build it so that our heroes couldn't destroy it quickly but I was able to predict that she would build a giant weapon. I was able to predict that uh, Sue's son would turn back to the good side. I was able to predict that uh, Kavira would turn herself in. I was able to predict that uh, Mako would try to sacrifice himself, but then still live at the end. A lot of things at the end of season four, I assumed it would happen, and it happened exactly as I predicted. Yeah, I, I think that I kind of agree with you. The... The beginning of of book four is actually really um, engaging and heartwarming and heart wrenching at sometimes. Yeah. Uh, and basically, Cora's whole plot during that that portion of the season, at least, was very good. But then, uh, yeah, there was a turning point. It just sort of decreased in value for me, like as the season progressed. Well, again, the whole. Bolin, Varric side pieces were pretty pretty good. Yeah. And the fact that Bolin was accidentally working with the Nazi, I think that that was actually very fascinating. That that, that was. was cool, you know? It really shows how someone with a very good heart, who's a little naive, can get suckered into doing something and find themselves in over their, over their head. Yeah. And a real mark of how good you are is if once you realize, oh no, what I'm serving is not good, do you stay with it, or do you depart from it, even if departing yeah. is hard? Yeah. I don't like Bolin overall, but I did like what they did with him and Kavira and Opal in Book 4. And yeah, the also, tension between him and Opal, that was good. Yeah, and Mako, so Mako is a character that I'm kind of just, well, I mean, I, I kind of liked him uh at at first until i realized that he was basically just there to be you know oh angsty boy and uh oh you know oh i'm so 
uh, like, oh, I'm so cool and stuff, and oh, I don't care about anything except for my brother and stuff, and him being involved in these dumb love triangles. But uh, what they did with him before and Prince Wu, who I surprisingly enjoyed, that was interesting. Really? <laughs> I surprisingly liked yeah. Prince Wu. I didn't find him annoying. I thought I would find him annoying when he was first introduced, but then I was like, I actually like Prince Wu. Yeah, I thought he was annoying. Yeah. He annoyed me a bit. Yeah. But also, I mean, he was meant to be kind of annoying, you know. The the fact that I found him annoying and that Mako just isn't my favorite meant that every time I saw him and Mako, I became uninvested in the plot. That's true. That's exactly. And that's partly what made me like Kovira at the beginning. I was like, yeah, obviously this prince sucks. Like, start a new government, Kovira. But then, obviously, she went evil and whatever. <laughs> and fascism is bad, blah, blah, blah. But, yeah. You no, know, at the beginning, I was just like, well, I don't like Prince Wu. Kovira uh, seems pretty good. So. that That's kind of how I felt as well. You know, it was like, uh, at first, you know, and well, you know, uh, the writer succeeded in, you know, tricking us into thinking that at first uh, Prince Wu was such an incompetent leader and Kavira actually has good ideas. And then, you know, they reveal that, oh, Kavira is actually an evil dictator and maybe Prince Wu isn't as incompetent as we thought. And so, you know, that yeah. was the writer's intention and they succeeded in, you know, tricking us into thinking one way and then actually turning our head, turning uh, that, you know, upside down. But yeah, like, I, your criticism of Prince Wu, definitely valid. You know, at first I did think he was a bit annoying, but then I did actually start to like him a bit. But what you said about uh, every, you basically got disinterested every time you saw Mako and Prince Wu, that's basically throughout the whole show how I felt every time that uh, Bolin showed up and almost every, t- uh, like, half the time with Korra. In reference to what you had just said about you think that they subverted our expectations with Wu being a ditz and Kovira actually having some savvy, I, I agree that at the beginning, Wu was a ditz and Kovira did have savvy. I actually think that it was lazy writing that it flip-flopped and Wu turned out to actually have decent ideas and Kovira. I mean, while it is kind of natural to become hungry with power and not know how to relinquish it, even when you should, I think it would have been a far more elegant ending if maybe Kovira couldn't be completely overcome and... And it turned out that she actually was the more competent ruler between the two. Or even if, um, uh, what's Beifong's sister? Sue. Sue. Even if Sue stepped up in the end, she saw Kovira. Sue was so, so anti. Like, that would have also... Don't be a queen. Be a leader. She's already leading a whole very successful nation. Or, I mean, Uh, it's it's more like she put together a commune, and that's about as as far as she wanted it to go. Um, I don't don't know as... While she would have probably done a good job, I don't think Sue would have been the right choice for leading either. I mean, honestly... Yeah. Hmm? Me neither. Yeah. I don't think that's yeah. I, I think that honestly, leader either. Yeah, I, uh, but I think that 
as long as she didn't go full tyrant, uh, Kovira had a shot at doing something good. And I kind of don't like how it was a little bit lazy that they said, you know what's really easy? Let's just push her over to the edge to where we can all see that she's clearly evil and then she becomes the villain that we need to put down. Uh, I think keeping her more complicated than, than a clear villain all the way throughout would have been a greater service to her character. Also, let's not do giant mech battles with lasers. Yeah, no no more mechs. Yeah, more lasers. Well, well, to, well, to be fair, to be fair, the entire show has lazy writing, so... But what's it called? I, I do I do agree that the giant lasers and the mech battles and all that stuff at the end was uh, kind of, that was, you know, a bit much. And it was kind of cheesy and predictable that, you know, Asami's dad sacrificed himself. And, you know, I was able, I was able to predict that too. And I actually wish that uh, instead of Korra, fighting down a uh, fighting and defeating taking down kuvira it was actually sue and lynn who went inside the giant suit and Korra was just doing something else yeah mm. i i feel like it would have had more meaning probably it would have had more meaning because sue was the one who took in kuvira i wish that the final battle was instead of Korra and kuvira was sue and kuvira I have said some pretty critical things about Korra. I do want to end by stating all of the things that I think make it a truly good show. Because if you just listen to what I said, it almost doesn't seem like I'm endorsing the movie. I love, or the show, I love the show. And I do want to end on the note of reminding everyone why I think it is truly a worthwhile watch. Yeah, no, pl please do. Because a lot of the stuff that you said has actually been surprisingly negative. And I remember you telling me that you actually prefer Korra over Avatar. So despite all the criticisms, why do you still love Korra and why do you prefer it over Avatar? So when I said that I prefer it over Avatar, it was not to say anything ill of Avatar. I think Avatar right. is masterfully written. I think it is uh, the better written of the two, for sure. We've already talked about the, the kind of lazy writing that occurred. Uh, we, we know that Avatar got it was approved for, they wrote all three books all in one at the same time. So it had a cohesive plot. It was not as cohesive uh, for reasons that we've already described with Legend of Korra. So it's not the writing necessarily, but I love the world building minus, of course, random Americanization, Westernization, and giant mechs, or mechs in general. Um, minus that, I love the world building of it. I like the way that it went. I give it, I'll say probably a 9 out of 10 for world building. The two things that I just said, the reasons that I won't give it the 10 out of 10. I love that we got to see the political disarray uh, of the Earth Kingdom in the wake of everything that happens. I, I, I think... I think that part is really well done. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a it's a good story. I like the characters. I think that they're really fun. Um, that was one of your criticisms, Colton, but I think it is a strong point. They're all pretty lovable at the end. I'm not a huge fan of Mako, but I think everybody else, like, I would be friends with in person. <laughs> I just, I like them. So, obviously, I love uh, Avatar way more than Korra. Um, I would basically give 
all three seasons of Avatar like a 10 out of 10. Maybe the first season of Avatar like a 9.5, but it's still amazing. So, and with Korra, I really wanted to like Korra, even though I was skeptical about it since they first announced it back in 2011 or whatever. So, I wanted to like it because when people recommend me stuff, especially uh, really good uh, friends of mine, like you guys or friends I have in New Jersey, when people recommend me stuff and it's related to stuff I love, I really want to like it. I went into Korra, like, knowing about, you know, some people, you know, don't like it, some people have major issues with it, and I was like, okay, you know, maybe I'll give it the benefit of the doubt, but book one left such a bad taste in my mouth that even though I enjoyed the rest of the seasons much more, I still couldn't truly love them, not just because of issues that those books uh, two, three, and four had, but also because of how much of a bad taste book one left in my mouth. So, in my mind. That's basically my uh, thoughts on Korra. I I'm sure that there's been there's some stuff that I'm forgetting to address or mention, but we've gone for a really long time now, so I think we want to wrap things up. But, uh, but so, but yeah. Do you do either one of you have any final final thoughts to say about Cora before we end the we end this? I appreciate you having us on to talk, and I really liked having an excuse to rewatch the series. So. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. Doing these podcasts is always fun, and uh, yes, and that will be the end of the this episode on the Legend of Cora. So. Thank you again, uh, William and Tabitha, for appearing on my podcast. Always no, a pleasure. Absolutely. Uh, thank you all for listening. Uh, if you're still here, because this has definitely like been like I haven't finished editing editing this yet, but this is definitely gonna go for over an hour and a half, maybe even into two hours. So if you're still listening, thank you so much for still uh, sticking uh, by. And yeah, I hope that all of you out there are doing well, staying safe. Uh, I look forward to seeing you guys in the next episode. Bye.